Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, State Senator Rob McCauley joins us to talk more about the bill he co-sponsored to mandate financial literacy education in Ohio, should it be limited solely to high schools. Also this morning, Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baruti discusses the rollout of COVID-19 boosters and vaccines for kids and the ongoing effort to convince more people to get the shot in the first place. In our ongoing Keeping the Faith series this morning, does FOMO happen to Christians? And celebrating our hometown storytellers at the Findlay Hancock County Public Library. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. So last night we had the uh, big Halloween parade. Uh, the Cops and Kids Halloween parade was a fabulous, fabulous parade. After uh, missing last year, it was great to have it back, and the crowds were fantastic. Uh, the weather was beautiful. It was just a wonderful lot of people getting a big haul of candy and all of that. Uh, so we had the Halloween parade last night. We got trick or treat coming up on Saturday in Finlay. And that actually leads to our question of the day. I saw this on Yahoo News. I saw a piece uh, asking, How old is too old to be trick or treating? We're going to make this our question of the day because people have very strong opinions on this. And so you can go to the WFIN Facebook page and sound off, weigh in, how old is too old to be trick-or-treating? I know a lot of people feel that once you get to a certain age, it's it's time to cut them off. It's time to cut off the kids. And uh, I know of people who, if a teenager or somebody who is in their opinion too old quote-unquote too old to be trick-or-treating comes to the door um they uh they won't uh, give them candy they'll turn them away empty-handed now and again i saw this uh, piece on yahoo news which uh, asked parents and child experts uh, about this uh alexand uh, alexandrina is that even Alexandrina Aguirre from Holly Springs, Georgia, says, I know a lot of parents think high schoolers are too old to be trick-or-treating. She says, I don't think so, though. The oldest trick-or-treaters I've seen are maybe 14, 15 years old, and these kids could be doing God knows what. If they still want to trick-or-treat, that's totally fine. She says they shouldn't turn them away just because some people think they're too old. They are still kids, 14 and 15. So, yes, still kids, but too old to trick-or-treat? Uh, again, my my big thing is I have never really, it's never, I've never gotten bent out of shape because kids are too old to trick-or-treat. I, I do sometimes wonder about the kids that are too young to, to trick-or-treat. Those are the ones that I don't get. We'll have them come to, come to the door, and it's like a four-month-old. <laughs> And, of course, mom's collecting the candy. And I'm thinking, who is this candy for? <laughs> you know, this is not for your four-month-old child. You know, just you know, admit, you, you want to go trick-or-treating. But then again, too, uh, I know the excitement of you know, being a parent for the first time. 
And whether the kid is actually old enough to understand the whole concept of trick or treat, you're kind of excited about doing the trick or treat thing as a parent, you know, but uh, and that maybe that's the uh, <laughs> maybe that's the, the line in the sand. Once you become a parent, you should not be trick or treating anymore unless you're escorting your kids uh, around. Uh, Brett Bernstein, this is from the uh, piece in Yahoo News, a community resource unit supervisor at the Pima County Sheriff's uh, Department in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, points out that at some point, uh, kids get to the age where they want to go out trick-or-treating alone without mom or dad. And if you feel that they're old enough uh, to do that, he suggests having a plan in place beforehand, know where they are going, uh, what streets, what areas they'll be trick-or-treating at, and agree on a specific time when they should return home. So that's all always very good. Uh, so a lot of things to uh, to keep in mind, but that we that I wanted to throw that out there and uh, see what uh, kind of reaction we get. Our question of the day, you go to our Facebook page and weigh in, how old is too old to be trick-or-treating? It'd be interesting to uh, follow the responses there throughout the uh, course of the morning, so you can weigh in on that. So this is... Definitely going to be one of those stories that uh, gets an awful lot of buzz. Speaking of Facebook and online platforms, this is definitely one of the most buzzworthy stories that people will be talking about today. So I'll tell you about this story just so you are forewarned. You're going to hear people talking about this or see people talking about this online. Portland, Oregon has become the first city in the nation to offer bereavement leave for employees after an abortion. Think about that. City council members voted unanimously last week to alter the city's bereavement policy, which now offers three days leave to employees who experience any type of pregnancy loss, including abortion, miscarriage, and stillbirth. The miscarriage and stillbirth thing, I, I certainly can understand that. Uh, and one could argue that maybe even three days isn't enough. Maybe make it a full week. But it would also apply to a pregnancy termination, i.e. an abortion. And that is going to generate a lot of controversy. You know it will. Council also changed the policy to allow employees to take bereavement leave following the death of any individual related by close affinity. So it would not just be a spouse, it would be a boyfriend, girlfriend, um, any person with whom the employee has a significant personal bond resembling a familial relationship. The policy previously specified the employee must be related to the deceased person or biologically through marriage. But it is that bereavement uh, following the loss of a pregnancy, including by abortion, that is going to really generate some controversy. So expect to see people weighing in about that online. This is another story that is has over the past several years been rather controversial and apparently now is less so. For the first time, a majority of Americans are very concerned about climate change. This is according to a new poll from the Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs Research and the University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute. In this survey, 
Now, 59% said global warming is very or extremely important to them as an issue. And that is up 10 percentage points from just three years ago. In 2018, it was 49%. So this is the first time that that number has gone over 50%. Among the factors that influence their views, 54% cited information from scientists, 51% named recent extreme weather events, Three quarters of Americans, 75%, say they believe that climate change is happening, including 89% of Democrats and 57% of Republicans. Still quite a few fewer Republicans, but still more than 50%, almost 60%. Just 10% overall don't believe that climate change is happening, and 15% say they were unsure. Uh, What is interesting about this is the question of, number one, is it man-made? And most importantly, number two, what to do about it? And when it comes to that part of it, 55% in this uh, poll want Congress to pass legislation ensuring more of the nation's electricity comes from clean energy sources. And 52% would support a -a dollar-a-month carbon fee on their energy bill to fight climate change. But support for that fee decreases as the amount of the fee goes up, not surprisingly. But an interesting development uh, with this uh, this survey, the first time that a majority of people agree that uh, climate change is a concerning issue, or a very concerning issue. 59% overall. Apparently, what has been a controversial topic in the past uh, is no longer and one other item here among the first things you need to know this morning this may make it a little bit more difficult to wake up this morning and get ready to head into work (laughs) compare your workplace to this the CEO of Spanx you know Spanx the uh, it was an exercise uh, wear company, right? You see, uh, they were very popular in, in past years. The CEO of Spanx gave her employees a really big gift last week to celebrate the shapewear company now being worth $1.2 billion. That's amazing. That company is worth $1.2 billion. Sarah Blakely founded Spanx. Back in the year 2000 with just $5,000. And today it is worth $1.2 billion. And to celebrate uh, reaching the billion-dollar valuation milestone, Sarah Blakely gave each of her more than 500 employees double the amount that she started her company with. She gave each of her 500 employees $10,000. You do the math on that. And she didn't stop there, gave them two first class plane tickets to anywhere in the world. She shared a video of the announcement on Instagram, including employees shocked and elated reactions. As you might imagine, employees were shocked and elated. And she wrote in the caption of the video, I really want every employee to celebrate this moment in their own way and create a memory that will last a lifetime. The $1.2 billion valuation, by the way, result of an investment firm 
Blackstone buying a majority stake in Spanx last week. And uh, wow, 10 grand and a pair of plane tickets to anywhere in the world. First class, no less. So that may make it a little more difficult to get up and go to your job this morning. I don't know. I don't know if you're likely to get anything like that, but that is pretty amazing. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly cloudy today with a high of 56, mostly cloudy tonight, a low of 47. A big honor for a Hancock County veteran, Roger Neff was recently inducted into the Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame. Nicole Coleman, executive director of the Hancock County Veterans Service Office in Findlay, nominated Roger for the honor. His infectious patriotism and positive attitude creates an atmosphere that brings people together for common good. Nicole says Roger makes meaningful connections everywhere he goes and has started and worked with a lot of local organizations over the years. Get more on Roger and the Veterans Hall of Fame on our website. It turns out Ohio printed 35,000 new license plates featuring the Wright Brothers' historic first plane before learning that the plane was backwards. State officials acknowledged the error immediately after the new plates were unveiled last Thursday and released a photo of the corrected plate, but the state spokesperson says 35,000 plates had already been printed. The new license plate includes an illustration of a banner which should have been trailing behind the plane, but is instead attached to its front. The corrected plates are scheduled to be released in December. Dave James, in News. Police in Ohio's capital city report that a new program aimed at reducing gun violence received a strong response. 102 guns were handed over to Columbus police officers. It was part of a gun buyback event held on Saturday. The public safety director's office released the numbers, and of the guns handed over, 74 were handguns, 15 shotguns, and 13 rifles. Those who turned in a gun received a gift card. Now, if those guns are connected to a crime, detectives will take over. If it was stolen, it will be given back to the original owner. The rest will be destroyed. ONN's Yolanda Harris reporting. Registration is underway for Camp Fun, a program designed for area youth who have been affected by addiction or overdose. The camp, a community collaborative initiated by the Hancock County Opioid and Addictions Task Force, will be held on Saturday, November 20th. The fun in Camp Fun stands for Friendship, Understanding, and Nurturing. The camp is free, but limited spots are available. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Our cover story this morning involves something we were talking about a little bit uh, yesterday. State Senator Rob McCauley is a co-sponsor of a bill that has sailed through the state legislature with the broad bipartisan support and now awaits uh, the governor's signature. It would mandate financial literacy education in Ohio. Uh, joining us uh, this morning is State Senator uh, Rob McCauley and uh, Senator, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, talk a little bit about the impetus uh, for this. This is something that uh, a lot of folks have uh, long said uh, should be uh, taught in schools. So what was the impetus for uh, for this bill? Now, I know it wasn't you didn't author the bill, but you were a primary co-sponsor. Uh, what was the impetus for this? Well, this is this is something that I've been working on for years, um, probably since back into my first term in the legislature starting in 2015, mm-hmm. primarily because you you look at what the current requirement is before this law was passed, and it, it required school districts across the state to, uh, to, to have 
to teach financial literacy and economics integrated into their social studies curriculum, which is all fine and dandy, but you had a, a different treatment across the state where you had some school districts teaching it as a half-credit course, um, and you had some school districts maybe having a bank come in one afternoon and talk about bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And that's not really giving students really what they need, because in my opinion, the biggest thing we need to do uh, for our kids who are in our school system is give them the best chance at success. And of course, uh, many of the courses taught there will, will uh, line them up for sex or success, but the, the universal truth uh, as it concerns the lining them up for good, successful lives afterwards, is they need financial literacy. They need to understand how all of this works. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of us get to be uh, later on in our lives before we realize how many financial instruments and debt instruments and interest payments and many of things of those nature and time value of money actually work. And we wish we would have known earlier. And I think this could benefit young people, particularly early in their lives. And and one of the questions you kind of touched on this, uh, one of the questions I wanted to to ask, the the goals for the curriculum, because as I was looking at uh, uh, at the bill, uh, it doesn't seem to uh, lay out, other than mentioning that obviously the curriculum has to uh, uh, has to uh, conform to broad curriculum standards that all subjects taught in Ohio schools have to. It references uh, that in the Ohio Revised Code. It doesn't necessarily lay out specific curriculum. So, what do you envision uh, being taught in these classes? What what would be your goal for this? In, in my opinion, it should talk about. Of how do credit cards work? How does that interest work? It's not free money, certainly. We, right. we know that as adults, but I don't know that many kids know that. How do you balance a checkbook? How do mortgages work? How do you take out a mortgage? And uh, frankly, what's the compounding uh, value of savings in your early 20s versus your 30s versus your 40s? And how much bigger is it going to be if you start saving and investing early, even just small amounts? Uh, in your career. And it really, it's designed to give people uh, an understanding how they can have financial security and even financial mobility throughout their lives. If they make wise financial decisions, don't live beyond their means and, and uh, make decisions that aren't going to put them behind the eight ball as it concerns uh, debt and, and, uh, and having to pay some of that stuff off. And so, that's really what I hope and envision from that. And this, this is applicable whether, whether you're making um, a low-wage earner or you're making six sure. figures. Right. Um, because there are people who are making six figures who are spending way more than they should as well. A- so a- this is that I think will be universally beneficial. Well, was, there, was there some discussion about uh, laying out some of the uh, bullet points in, in terms of curriculum that uh, would have to be uh, included? Because, you know, financial literacy that's a pretty broad term and could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It, it, there was some discussion about that, but ultimately we wanted to leave it uh, somewhat flexible. Mm-hmm. And and the Ohio Department of Education has already laid out curriculum standards as it concerns financial literacy and several various options um, that could be offered, but okay. primarily it's going to be aimed at many of the concepts that I just described. Yeah. It's, it's going to be aimed at understanding how money works generally at a very basic level um, and how in debt and, and saving works at a very basic level. Um, that way people can leave and uh, high school even 
and uh, take out that car loan and understand what they're getting into or mm-hmm. or maybe buy that uh, that piece of furniture on their credit card and understand that it's in their best interest to pay it off as quickly as possible right. rather than racking up uh, interest at a very high rate. The reason I ask about uh, the finer points of the curriculum is because uh, the bill also does allow uh, for schools to kind of farm this out to uh, outside programs that have been uh, developed uh, to be used in schools uh, so as not to overburden teachers, which, as we know, and we were talking about yesterday, are you know already uh, have a lot on their plate. But is there any concern that in so doing that we might end up with some slanted programs as we were talking about yesterday, uh, a program that is developed by a coalition of uh, financial institutions may have a very different paint, a very different picture of of credit and lending and uh, things like that than, say, a curriculum developed by Dave Ramsey, who uh, famously rails against those things. So is there concern that there might be an undue emphasis on one uh, point or another uh, if an outside curriculum is used? Having been a loyal listener of Dave Ramsey, I certainly hope it's uh, Dave Ramsey uh, <laughs> rather than one you may describe. But yeah. I'll, I'll point this out. It still has to be approved by ODE. And ODE is not going to approve anything that, that uh, goes the direction that I guess you're, you're worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I should point out the co-sponsor of, uh, with me on this bill is a former bank president, somebody yeah. who some might look at that and say, you know, uh, what, what's his interest? Yeah, it could be self-serving. In, in doing this, yeah. that he probably he may want people taking out more debt. Right. Well, he may that may be true, but also he understands that we have to play the long game here. Mm-hmm. And if he can get somebody saving early, building their net worth, um, who who's smart with their money, that person is going to be in a much better financial position, um, even midway through their life, to be able to take out a mortgage, um, to be able to uh, make an investment in real estate, to be able to do a variety of things that banks work with them, um, that if they don't make solid financial decisions, they're not going to be able to do those things. And all of those mm-hmm. things are have the potential to be win-win for both the, uh, the homeowner in that case or the investor. Um, and the lender potentially. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, long and short of it, the basics of the uh, bill is that it uh, requires financial literacy education as a, it requires a half credit uh, financial literacy education as a graduation requirement for uh, for high school students beginning with next year's incoming freshman class. Why limit it to just high school students? I mean, the, the point has been made uh, many times over the years that uh, even at the youngest ages, uh, kids uh, can benefit from learning about uh, financial concepts and so on, uh, even into elementary and certainly middle school grade levels. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the reason is because this is this is a mandatory curriculum. It's going to be a graduation requirement going forward. And while I certainly would agree with you that um, I think kids could benefit from this type of education at a very basic level earlier on in, in their school lives, but um, this is something that we felt, uh, especially given the fact that there were um, there was a wide range of schools uh, teaching based under the current requirement, whether it be a half credit or one day mm-hmm. with a financial institution. Uh, we felt this was a good place to start. And, and we believe, based on other states that have done this, um, it, we're going to see a pretty immediate impact, which is something that is very rare um, but when, you, when you implement this type of policy in that uh, the research suggests that when you implement a policy like this, 
you almost see immediate increases in credit scores and things of that nature um, for young people after completing this curriculum. And so uh, that, that's something that I think will, will uh, reap benefits and rewards for us as a state. And it's something that will help these kids at a very young age. Again, as we mentioned, it was a bill that uh, pretty much sailed through near unanimous. I mean, it was uh, uh, broad bipartisan support uh, in the uh, state legislature now awaits the uh, governor's signature. And all indications are uh, that he will sign it. And this will uh, actually become law and again, will apply to uh, next year's incoming freshman class state. Senator Rob McCauley with us uh, this morning. Mr. McCauley, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. The latest news, sports, weather, and so much more. Good mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, you remember yesterday on the program, we were uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Bill Coase, Blanchard Valley Health System, about these latest developments on the uh, COVID-19 front. Uh, continue that conversation from the uh, public health standpoint. Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baruti is with us this morning. And uh, right before we went on the air, uh, kind of talking about how this is uh, this is pretty exciting. I mean, this is uh, good news. The expansion of uh, vaccines looks like they're going to be approved for younger children uh, here uh, very soon. Uh, we got the uh, approval for boosters. Um, we've seen numbers kind of trending in the right direction. So all of this is is positive news from a public health standpoint. Good morning, Chris. Absolutely. This is excellent news, uh, especially the numbers that uh, we had a really good weekend with low numbers of uh, new infections. Mm-hmm. And I think we, as I looked at the numbers this morning, we are still trending in the right direction. And uh, we want to just make sure we keep it we keep it that way. Yeah, I think it's important for us to uh, uh, vaccination still the number one strategy to get this whole thing behind us. Mm-hmm. And now the expansion of the vaccine to the to the younger um, generations and um, and the booster shots I think should uh, hopefully will put this yeah. whole thing behind us. Um, obviously, when the uh, vaccines were first rolled out, uh, the availability was the issue and kind of rolled that out in stages. But it. it certainly appears that their vaccine is plentiful now so for those who are eligible and want to get that booster uh, they should have no problem with that. absolutely and uh if you remember a couple of weeks ago um the the cdc approved the third shot for the immunocompromised mm-hmm. and uh, uh this morning i'm reporting that we've done uh, more than 2500 of those shots already pretty significant uh, uh, number in just a short amount of time absolutely and the third shots uh, the boosters uh, are available um, for the uh, for the Pfizer and the Moderna um, right now, um, it's by appointment, and we are planning a mass clinic for first, second, third, and booster shots for all three vaccines um, on November 9th at the fairgrounds. Okay, so that's those are walk-in clinics. We want to just want to make sure we we make a, we make a big push for, uh, and that clinic is going to be from three to six. Just make it convenient for people for okay. folks who are um, at work or at school, uh, and they want to take advantage of that. So business. circle that on uh, on the calendar. What is the overall vaccination rate right now uh, locally? Have we seen uh, that uh, steadily increase, or you know where does that stand? Because that's the other part of it. I mean, boosters are great, but again, uh, part of the big part of the push. Uh, is the ongoing effort to convince pe- more people to to get the shot in the first place? Absolutely, and um, I just want to start by if I want to talk about the the rates, I wouldn't just say that the COVID nineteen vaccine continued to be remarkably safe and effective um, in reducing the risk of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. 
um, you know, um, including against the Delta variant. We've seen that back in August, mm-hmm. and you know, at the peak of the uh, of the of the surge, uh, where the risk of dying of COVID in the U.S. was 11 uh, more times greater for unvaccinated people than the vaccinated individuals. Those yeah. are facts. That's the data. So far, we've vaccinated um, about 48 uh, people who started the vaccine in Hancock County. Uh, is that 48.18 percent? We're inching up a little bit. Uh, we're still lagging behind the state average, above 55, 56 percent now vaccinated. Um, completed the vaccine is about 45.64 percent. Um, you know, together, it's about 70,000 doses that we've administered here in Hancock County. I'm sure you know someone who got the vaccine. Um, they're doing okay. They did okay through the surge. So I encourage everybody to consider it now. Yeah. And uh, again, you talk about the uh, effectiveness. That's not to say that there haven't been breakthrough cases. Uh, that is uh, certainly a, a possibility. But at the same time, you know, weighing all of the risks uh, versus the benefits, uh, it seems like a no-brainer to uh, to get the vaccine. Need to get more people out to uh, to get that vaccinated. And obviously, uh, for those who have been vaccinated, uh, then we stress the uh, boosters at this point. Absolutely. Breakthrough cases are to be expected. Mm-hmm. So um, I think like with any other vaccine and boosters are to be expected, like with any other vaccines as well. Um, so as the uh, as the science and the the virus evolve, so do the recommendations and uh, what's available. And uh, what about the uh, vaccines for younger children? We keep hearing that uh, probably within the next few days we we'll get the approval. The FDA uh, panel gave its uh, uh, approval for vaccines for kids under age twelve uh, yesterday. Uh, then it goes to the full FDA and then the CDC. And once all of that process is done, which should be in the next few days, then that will open it up for uh, vaccines for younger people. Uh, are we ready to launch into that and, and vaccinate uh, younger people as soon as that becomes available? Here locally, we are ready. Um, I think Hancock Public Health, we did order, um, uh, we did pre-order the vaccine with the lower dose of mm-hmm. the Pfizer uh, that was recommended by the FDA panel yesterday. Um, and like you mentioned, it's expected for the CDC to approve that as well later in the week or early next week. Right. So I'm thinking the first, second week of November, uh, we should start, uh, you know, putting together clinics for the for the younger uh, 5 to 11 with a lower dose of the Pfizer. Those that's a two um, that's a two shot series as well, mm-hmm. but is that a lower dose for the five to eleven? Right. Has there been uh, interest? I mean, have uh, have you talked with uh, parents who's, who are uh, wondering when is this going to be available? I mean, trying to gauge uh, just how many, uh, how much of a demand there is likely to be for that. Yeah, and um, it's hard to gauge the demand at this point. Uh, once the vaccine will become available, um, I think the the parents who got the the shot themselves, I'm sure they will project that on their kids, and they will want them to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, again, um, when we when we come to the pediatric uh, part of the vaccination, it's always good to consult with the with the primary providers to make sure. Um, you know, weigh in, you weigh in the risks. There are always risks, you know, that comes with a vaccine. Um, but uh, the FDA panel of scientists and even consumers on that panel deemed it to be safe um, to be uh, to recommend it to the CDC. Um, and I think we should trust the science behind it. Um, of course, with the uh, vaccinations for younger people, the goal is to make sure that we minimize uh, the spread in schools and so on. What have you seen, especially uh, this year so far, 
with the relaxed uh, masking uh, mandates and social distancing and so on, are you satisfied with uh, the the situation in the schools and kind of containing the spread there? We've always said all along here since the beginning of the pandemic that the school's done a you know, marvelous job in keeping the spread down. Um, they worked really hard on, um, you know, the masking last last year, um, the separations and, you know, the online uh, part of it, too. Um, this year, with the relax, we, you know, as we collected more data, like I said, we were evolving. The science is evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, we, we found out that um, less and less uh, spread is, is uh, happening at the school, in this classroom, I should say, uh, in school buildings. And that's why we relaxed the quarantine um, uh, requirements for that. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking that, you know, we, again, we go, we went back to that weighing the risk versus the benefit. Yeah. We figured that the risk is very minimal to the benefit of the, uh, of the kids being in class. And uh, of course, as uh, folks know, we had in the uh, story in the news uh, yesterday, the Ohio Department of Health has uh, revised the guidelines for uh, tracing and, and uh, cases uh, in schools as well. Again, based on that uh, evolving knowledge of what's going on in Ohio schools right now. That should keep more kids in, in the class. Yeah, which is uh, obviously the ultimate goal. Uh, would have to mention here, uh, before we let you, let you go, we're also coming into cold and flu season. So in the midst of all of this, while we don't want to, you know so much of our attention to be drawn to COVID-19, understandably, but we also want to be uh, aware of, uh, you know, it's time to get the uh, annual flu shot as well. Absolutely. Flu shot, uh, you know, season is underway. Uh, we've been uh, organizing a lot of clinics. You can call and, and schedule some. We do have a clinic this morning, actually, at 50 North. Mm-hmm. It's a walk-in clinic from 9 to 11, um, and it's a, it's a flu flu vaccine clinic. I encourage everybody to get the flu shot, especially this year, because, again, we, we want to. it's one of those years that we had last year, one of the situations we had last year when we are combating COVID and the flu together. Yeah, and we don't want to uh, have that twin-demic uh, going on once again. So, uh, like we mentioned, uh, 50 North uh, hosting that uh, high-dose vaccine. Uh, vaccine uh, clinic today, 9 to 11. 9 so, to 11. Okay. Uh, again, uh, Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baruti with us this morning. Update on the uh, situation here locally. Kareem, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Chris. And now to our ongoing Keeping the Faith series this morning. We have all heard the term FOMO, the fear of missing out. You know, it applies to Christians as well. It is not uncommon for followers to be led astray, if you will, by their fear of missing out on the secular life experiences that seem so appealing. And that's okay. Uh, Jesus actually uh, addresses FOMO with the parable of the prodigal son. And Christians should know that he will welcome you back after the long walk home. Correspondent John Clemens reports this morning, Keeping the Faith. The prodigal son is the parable that Christ gave us of the one son who received a portion of his father's estate and then wasted it on foolishness. The story illustrates the forgiving father who celebrated his son's return and the joy that comes when even one sinner repents. Matt Carter, who serves as the pastor of preaching and vision at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas, has authored the book, The Long Walk Home. I'm seeing in this current generation of millennials and Gen Z is that so many of them are sort of going through the same process that the prodigal son went. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to ask the question, why did the prodigal son leave in the first place? The 
answer to that question is that deep down inside, he was looking at the faraway land and thinking, you know what, there's a better life for me outside of the love of my father. And what I'm seeing in millennials and the younger generation is that's what they're doing sooner and more often than ever before. The long walk home will take readers on a journey through the prodigal son story, showing the many parallels Christians face, such as believing the lie that there is a better life outside of God's love or falling prey to the folly of sin. As I ask myself the question, why did he leave his home in the first place? If life with his dad was so great, why did he take off? And I think the, the answer is because at some point in time, he became convinced that there was a better life for him outside of his father's house, that if he stayed there with his dad, he was missing out on something. And the reason that that sort of hit me is because I think that's where so many young Christians are today. They think, man, if I go all in with Jesus, dive head first and go 100% with this Christian life thing, am I missing out on life's best? Pastor Matt Carter tells us The Long Walk Home is a book for those who love the Lord, but at times throughout your life, you find yourself weary and broken, confused, even questioning, maybe even hanging on by a thread. Then this book is for you. And this story answers that question, and so we're sort of looking at it from a new and fresh perspective, and answering the question, ultimately, for anybody who reads it, is the best life you can find, is it actually with the Lord? Or is there a better life outside of God's love for you? And so that's really who this book is for. It's for anybody who maybe is asking that question. Maybe they've been going to church for a while, kind of doing the Christianity thing, but deep down inside, they're looking at the horizon going, man, is there something better out there for me? Is there something that I'm missing out on? And this book answers that question, and it answers it biblically. Pastor Matt Carter believes another group would benefit from reading The Long Walk Home. But it's also for the person that's failed. There are a lot of us, maybe, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. I am a prodigal son. I relate to the story because I've done this. I've gone to the faraway land of sin, and I realized that there's no life there. And so it's for the person that thinks that they've sinned so far that they, they've kind of out the love of God. And, and the story, through the words of Jesus, just shows us that's impossible that God's love for us is greater than our wildest imagination. Pastor Carter prays the long walk home will guide readers into the arms of a loving dad. Maybe not the dad they had, but the one they always longed for, a dad who is ready to welcome them home, wipe them clean, and call them his beloved sons and daughters. My prayer for the long walk home is that people that read this will maybe get a a greater sense of God's love than they've ever had before. There's a lot of people out there deep down inside in places that they would never talk about or admit. They question it. Jesus said that the father took off in a dead sprint to him, runs to him, wraps his arms around him, cleans him up, and throws him a welcome home party. That's our God. And I want the people that are reading this book to understand that that's their God too, that he loves them in that kind of way and that there's nothing they could ever do to change that. The Long Walk Home had such an impact as a sermon series, it has now been made into a book by B&H Publishing. We actually did this as a sermon series for our youth student ministry. We feel like that so many of our students, our high school students, senior high students, and even college students are sort of in this place. I think it's more difficult to be a Christian now than maybe it's ever been in the history of our country. To be a a sold-out follower of Christ in America today, it's not easy. It's going to cost you something. We see so many kids asking the question, sooner and more often. Man, if I do this, if I go all in, what's it going to cost me? Is it, is it worth it? Is there a better life for me? This is John Clemens reporting. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Uh, you know the cops have heard it all, but this... Uh, <laughs> 
is one that uh, kind of takes the cake. A man in Wyoming allegedly tried to get out of a DUI charge by claiming his four-year-old son was the one behind the wheel. <laughs> his four-year-old. I wasn't me driving. It was my son. Problem is, son is four years old. Sheriff uh, Lieutenant Paul uh, Paulnell Campbell uh, tells uh, local news reporters deputy pulled over the 39-year-old man uh, Saturday after responding to a report he had been fighting with a woman. The suspect had driven off by the time deputies arrived, but they caught up with him and his two sons, ages 4 and 15, in his pickup truck. <laughs> the man claimed... The four-year-old was sitting on his lap, and he was the one driving. So, <laughs> all righty then. He allegedly refused field sobriety and breathalyzer tests. Deputies arrested him for driving under the influence, driving without an interlock device, and violating his probation. Oh, well, there's always that to throw into the mix. It wasn't me. My four-year-old was on the lap, and he was driving. Well, okay then. Speaking of automobiles and the broken news, this was a Saturday in Laurel, Maryland. A thief carjacked a vehicle from a gas station after the driver got out and left the vehicle running. The thief uh, jumped in and took off, but only got about a block before abandoning the vehicle he had just stolen when he noticed there were two children inside of it. <laughs> a little bit more than he bargained for there. Apparently, he just wanted the car. Uh, the uh, kids were safely recovered. The suspect has not been found. Uh, police have also not confirmed any uh, information about the suspect at this time, at least according to the report that I see here. Moral of that story is that if you want to keep your car from being carjacked, keep your kids inside. That's a never thought of my kids as an anti-theft device, but there you go. In that case, anyway. This is one uh, Halloween decoration that uh, you wouldn't want to find. This is always kind of interesting. I think we had a story in the uh, Broken News a couple of days ago about the man who had decked his front yard out for Halloween to such an extreme level that he was getting <laughs> the cops called by his neighbors saying it was, it was too much. Well, the Spartanburg Police Department... Um, reported that they got a 911 call about a child stuck in a gutter on Monday. This is Spartanburg, South Carolina, right? Um, North Carolina, South Carolina, one of the Carolinas. Anyway, so they get this uh, 911 call about a child stuck in a gutter on Monday. When they arrived, they found it was uh, fake child legs sticking out of the gutter. Somebody had uh, <laughs> had put it there for Halloween you know how you stuff a pair of jeans with leaves and, you know, kind of said, yeah, that's what it was. And uh, <laughs> to add to that, uh, the head of a white-faced clown was hidden in the shadows, seen inspired by the horror movie It, <laughs> which focuses on a deadly clown who lures children to their doom, including one boy who was snatched into a storm drain. So there you go. In the uh, post, the police did see the humor in the display, but chided its creators for leaving out the clown's calling card, a single red balloon. They, <laughs> they forgot the balloon. <laughs> oh, it is the season of mischief. And speaking of the season, this is kind of crazy. Story in the uh, broken news. 
a Catholic priest says that the pandemic is behind a rise in people asking for exorcisms. You think of that this time of year with Halloween and all of that. Italian priest Father Gian Matteo Roggio claimed that uh, some people believe a malign force to be behind the pandemic and that these feelings are particularly strong among those who have suffered financial hardship or mental health issues because of COVID-19. We talk about uh, all of the impact, all of the ways that COVID-19 has affected us, and apparently it's caused a spike in the number of requests for exorcisms. We have seen an increase in the request for ceremonies because the pandemic has made more people vulnerable to the idea that Satan or some evil entity has taken over their lives, according to this uh, this Catholic priest in uh, Italy. I can I can see that. I, I'm really not all that surprised that that's the case. There you go. Uh, some of the uh, odd and unusual side of the news. Uh, this update on uh, today's broken news report uh, brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services, and we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. The Finley Trojans play here on WFIN. This is Tim Montgomery. Join me and Coach Cliff Height for all the action of Trojan football in 2021. We'll bring you every exciting play each Friday night, all season long, home and away. Finley opens postseason play, hosting Miamisburg Friday night, pregame at 6.30. Finley Trojan football is here on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. This is the time of year for all things spooky. And according to a new survey commissioned by Phantom Wines and conducted by one poll, a very unscientific survey, but interesting results. uh, Nonetheless, the question they asked, do you believe in the paranormal? And it might surprise you the number of Americans who actually do believe in the paranormal in some form. 63% overall said, yeah, I believe. Uh, breaking it down, 57% say they believe in ghosts. And 49% of those surveyed said that they have felt the presence of a ghost at some point in their life. Can't say that that's happened to me, but I do know those who believe that they have felt the presence of a ghost at some point. So... 39% goes on to say 39% say they believe in aliens and 27% even believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> I don't know if I would include that in the paranormal, but and I get the idea. Most of those surveyed also believe in psychic abilities. 56% say they believe that some people can in fact see and predict the future. And 51% Still a majority say they believe that some people can, in fact, read minds. I don't know if I buy into all of that, but interesting numbers. The number of people who actually believe in ghosts, 57%, 63% overall believe in the paranormal. So, happy Halloween. With Halloween coming up, uh, November right around the corner, hard to believe, but here we are. Want to put the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library in the spotlight this morning. Talk about some of the uh, highlights of 
things happening at the library in the month of November. Sarah Clevidens is uh, with us. And Sarah, you've got a, a couple of things to uh, highlight here, uh, both happening right at the beginning of the month. First of all, your sixth annual Local Author Fest is putting hometown storytellers uh, front and center. We're very excited to host this event uh, in conjunction with Art Walk this year. So that'll be a first for us that we'll have it at... After normal library hours, we'll close on Friday, November 5th at our normal 5 o'clock and then reopen at 530 uh, for individuals to come in and meet 25 different local authors. 25 different local. I had no idea. And and that's one of the reasons why the uh, author fair is such a a great event is that I think most people probably didn't realize that we have so many published authors right here in our own community. Absolutely. Some of them are, if you've come to previous author fairs, you may remember um, Bob Naylor, I think, is one who's been at every author fair we've had. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there will be some new faces this year as well, and they write a wide variety, uh, nonfiction, poetry, mystery, comics, children's books, historical fiction, romance. Christian fiction, fantasy, so there should be something for everyone. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's uh, such a wide variety of uh, material that uh, folks are are passionate about here locally among our, our local authors. Absolutely. It's so fun to get to talk to an author about how they went through the process of mm-hmm. of creating their work and, yeah. and getting published, especially for, for someone who, you know, isn't on those bestseller lists yet, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting getting to know their story and their journey to becoming a published author. You know, and and that's the other thing that I think is uh, such that's so great about uh, an event like this is, like you said, these are not uh, authors' names that you will find on the bestsellers list, but there is so much great stuff out there that never will make a bestsellers list. Just because it's not best, not a bestseller doesn't necessarily mean that it's not good stuff. And uh, again, this is a, a perfect opportunity to maybe find things that otherwise you might miss. Absolutely. I, you know, there's only so much room for James Patterson's in the world. Right. Um, and there's so many other fantastic books out there. I'd say most of my favorites were not bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I like the fact that this is in conjunction with Art Fest uh, or Art Walk because this is uh, obviously its own form of art. It absolutely is. Literary yeah. art. And, and for those of you who think of art a little more traditionally, you know, those children's books have amazing uh, illustrations. Oh, yeah. They're really a, a child's first introduction to art. Good point. Now, uh, again, this is coming up on uh, Friday, November 5th, right? Correct. November 5th from 530 to 8. And uh, so make sure that uh, you, you check out the uh, author fair uh, with uh, 25 local authors participating uh, this year, November the 5th. Circle that on the calendar for sure. And then uh, coming up the following Monday, um, the uh, uh, the Friends Library, they're having a, a big uh, book sale, bag sale in the, uh, in the bookseller. They are. They're having a, a celebration for their 30th anniversary on November 8th. They'll have a bag sale that day. We're just... We're so grateful that the friends have been running the bookseller for 30 years. You know, it's a wonderful support to the library with all the funds that they raise, of course. But I think it's also a huge service to our community. You know, think of all those books that find new homes in the bookseller, things that, you know, maybe would have been discarded to mm-hmm. recycle or, or be still my heart, the, the <laughs> landfill even. Yeah. Um, 
that instead have this opportunity to be discovered by a new reader. Mm -hmm. Uh, A friend of mine who uh, owned a used bookstore uh, for a long time had a sign hanging in her store. No book is uh, used until you have read it. So uh, (laughs) that is uh, very, very true. Talk a little bit about the friends uh, of the library and what it is they do. I mean, uh, some people may not even be aware of the group um, and, and others may have heard the term, the, you know, the friends of the library, but what does that mean? What do they do? So I think that the, the most notable thing that people are familiar with that they do, of course, is, is running our used bookstore yeah. in the lower level of the library. But the Friends group meets um, three times a year. They hear presentations about things that are happening in the library uh, at those meetings, and, and they make decisions about how they want to spend um, funds that are raised through their membership dues and through the bookseller to support the library. Uh, over the years, they've supported Summer Read, uh, sent staff to professional development, um, they've purchased tables for the Linda Mood Room. Uh, one of the tutor rooms was funded by the Friends. Uh, there's just countless ways that they have supported us, uh, you know, helping to provide a little bit of extra um, service to our community. Yeah. Uh, the, the library would not be uh, what it is uh, without the uh, Friends of the Library. And uh, with the uh, 30th anniversary uh, coming up, they're always looking for new folks to join the group, too. You can never have too many friends. So <laughs> we and the friends group would welcome you with open arms. That's uh, that's true. Okay, and so the uh, big bag sale is Monday the 8th, right? Correct, yes. From uh, 10 to 6, it says. So uh, check that out. Great deals in the uh, bookseller, uh, especially for the 30th anniversary bag sale. Uh, so a couple of uh, big events coming up at the very beginning of the month of November. And then, like every month, you have a number of ongoing Uh, programs and activities for all ages from kids through adults. Absolutely. Our fall uh, children's programming series will wrap up that first week of November uh, with uh, the last story times in the parks, and then into the second week they still have um, some online events. Uh, We still have book discussions um, and standalone programs for adults all throughout the month of November. Uh, So, you know, we look forward to seeing you in maybe it's time for some healthy eating uh, tips in advance of the holidays, or you want to learn more about seasonal depression as our, as our days get shorter here. But we've got a wide variety of options for everyone. And uh, again, just to emphasize, it's not all ab- about books per se. As you mentioned, there are uh, all kinds of topics that you talk about within the uh, programming at the library. Absolutely. We could probably tie a book to anything that we do, but that's not the focus of, of uh, a number of our events. We're really all about lifelong learning here. Yeah, and uh, and uh, benefiting the uh, entire community. The full calendar of events, again, for kids, teens, adults, uh, all on the website, which we have linked up at goodmornings.net, so you can check that out. But uh, don't forget the uh, author fair uh, coming up on the 5th in conjunction with Art Walk and then the uh, big... Uh, book sale 30th anniversary friends of the library book sale uh on uh, monday the 8th so uh, check that out again sarah clevidence finley hancock county public library thanks very much for uh, for uh, taking the time we appreciate it thank you and that will put a wrap on our podcast for today thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning and remember you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our web page we'll send you to goodmornings.net goodmornings.net where you find our little corner of the World Wide Web. Coming up tomorrow on the program, 
Democrats claim to be getting close on a final draft of their multi-trillion dollar social spending bill. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown will join us to talk about what he sees as Ohio's priorities for that package. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.